Welcome to Business Data Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how they use a range of data to analyze business performance and inform strategic planning and decision-making. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba na Gayabu, Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has had one of those jet-setting careers MBA students dream of, from an internship in Stuttgart, Germany, whilst at university, to a finance systems and reporting consultant between Brisbane and Auckland. Adam Thorne's career was taken to the skies before it even started. Adam has spent the last decade working for Shell in London, Manila, The Hague, Brunei, and finally Krakow. He left Shell late last year to become the Vice President of Finance Global at medical technology company Smith & Nephew. Adam Thorne, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Adam, can you tell me a little bit more about your current role with Smith & Nephew and uh, what the organisation does? So I'll start with the organization. Uh, Smith & Nephew is a medical devices company with some 17,500 people around the world. It's a 160-year-old company business and has various franchises in orthopedics, which is things like knees and hips, um, sports devices, and wound. It's, I I think, quite a a noble company that has a, a mission to restore people's bodies. Wow. I, I did a little bit of reading about this company, but I had no idea it was 160 years old. It's, it must have quite a cultural background. Yeah, it absolutely does. I think what's really fascinating is seeing how broad its operations have become over that period. Adam, can you tell me a little bit about how you get to a company like Smith & Nephew? I mean, you've had lots of um, leadership roles in the past at big organizations like Shell, and obviously that's played a part, but what sort of skills are they looking for? So, Many organizations in the recent years have been going through transitions to using shared service centers in in a bigger and more significant way as part of their company operations. And traditionally, that's been in process areas or, or more transactional areas. And over time, the sort of organizations have moved up the value curve in doing higher and higher end activities, for example, moving from accounts payable to controllership in a finance sense through to financial planning and appraisal. In my particular case, Smith & Nephew was looking for someone who could really lead the setup of that type of organization. And in my background, I had both the the people leadership experience, but also the business partnering and, and, and sort of higher level finance experience, which was just the right combination. And did you gain those sorts of skills from companies like Shell? Yeah, absolutely. So in Shell, I was really lucky, I think, in the different opportunities that I I had. And really, two big parts came along there. The first was that on my second assignment, I got put into a a leadership role of a a team. And then quickly after that, two teams working in Manila in the Philippines. And then progressively had different opportunities. And then finally, my last role there was actually building an FP&A organization within a shell shed service center and across across the globe in different centers. And so really when this role came along, it was a great next step in that it brought together past experience, but it brought it together in one role. In 
the fact that you had the content of delivering the finance partnering, but also the, the organizational and process leadership pieces. You must have quite a different range of experiences of dealing with different cultures um, in the businesses that you've worked in. I mean, certainly I imagine Manila would be very different from Brisbane and very different from The Hague or Krakow where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that manifests itself in, in very different ways and happy to talk about some of that. In um, Manila, for example, you're working in a very high power distance culture uh, traditionally, whereas in you know moving on to the Netherlands, you're in a super egalitarian culture and you inevitably make mistakes in doing that and, and they're often the best learnings. And you know something I've generally found through my career is is using humor is a great tool for for connecting with people, for building up this sort of sense of openness and collaboration, but also one that I've had to learn from and, and be careful where I use it. One of the examples there was, and it's, uh, I, I think, a sort of textbook working in Asia uh, kind of experience, was my team had been doing an improvement project and as part of that analyzing their time where it was all spent. And when I was reviewing that with the analysts who'd done the work, it showed up that one of the ladies in the team had done about 30 hours of meetings in the last month. And she was just sitting nearby as we did it. And I said, wow, and, you know, it looks like you've had more meetings than me in the last month. Ha ha, you know, that's unlucky, kind of very funny. And I got in the office next day and she wouldn't talk to me. And, <laughs> you know, okay, what's, what's happening here? And an hour later, this went on and I'm like, okay, let's go in the meeting room and have a chat. And she came along and, and just started crying and, and not just a little bit, but, you know, hysterically. And what it had come down to was that she said to me in the end, and, and this was all about the sort of saving face piece, basically in front of my peers, my boss has just said, either I didn't do a good job of something uh, or I was lying. And in either case, they're, they're both terrible outcomes. So my quick quip across the floor turned into, you know, a disaster. And then she had to go home that day. You know, it, it couldn't work. She was so upset. So you have that experience all the way through to um, the Netherlands, I think, at the, the opposite end of that. And you, you certainly feel that in Shell, wherever you work, being a, a Dutch-parented company, this very open conversation and actually pretty robust challenge that you'll get from people at any level in the organisation. And, and, and learning to deal with that at any given time is, is equally fun. Great story and, um, and some very important lessons uh, to learn there, especially for any of our students who might uh, end up with a jet-setting career like you've had. Adam, this uh, podcast is about data and I just want to talk to you about how Smith and Nephew that you're with now use data to analyse their own business performance. Yes, yeah, so... I've actually been really impressed since I joined at the level of uh, data that's available in the organization and the tools that have been put in place to do that. Uh, in my job, and, and maybe you asked that before, I'll explain a little bit what that is. So I'm the VP for finance planning and appraisal, and there is essentially two big parts to that job. The first is leading the global FP&A organization, and, and that team is spread around the world doing finance planning and appraisal at either the country, the regional or the global level. And then my personal content is essentially being the, the business partner for the CFO and the CEO in terms of the information and the processes and data they need to 
both budget for and appraise the business. Uh, in that sense, then data and the availability of information is at the core of everything we do. We sit at the end of the end of the line, if you will, in that everything feeds through the organization up to this point. Um, and then really, right, every day is about what information you have, what data you can pull, and, and how well you can leverage that to tell a story. Well, that's really interesting, Adam, because you mentioned uh, the, the term tell a story there. Um, and as you said before, data is um, everything to what you do there. And it could seem like data is everything, getting those numbers and using those numbers to make a decision. Is that all it is? So no, absolutely not. It's, it's far more than data. So we had a call with the CFO this week, which was debriefing on our, our budget for the last year and looking forward to what we changed this year. And she was really, really clear that what we needed to do a better job of was giving tools to the business to help them tell their story in a useful way. That slides and slides of tables aren't the answer that, that are going to unlock that sort of next level of, of performance. So that's maybe one view. I think the other piece is how you get to that data. And really, in a, in a global organization, that's all about how well you connect with people and, and, and link up the organization to bring it together. Really, that takes all sorts of different forms, but down to, for example, agreeing with people, how is a timetable going to be built? You can, of course, centrally sit and, and create a timetable, and that will work. But we actually find that having a conversation early on of talking to the countries, talking to the regions, how does this work for you, and building it together creates that buy-in that yeah, this is our timetable. It's not something that's being done to me. You know, often people don't want to submit data to a system just for it to disappear into the nether and, and not know where it goes. So building up together what the deliverables are, building that understanding of where's my data going to be used, why is this important, why is the master data going to be right? Is, is critical to getting good outcomes. You're talking about working together there. So can you tell me what's your view on collaboration? Does it play a big part in data? I would say it plays a big part in sort of success in any large-scale organisation. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it is, of course, a tagline in some senses. Um, in, in Smith & Nephew, there are a sort of three key behavioural pillars, which are care, collaboration and courage. And in my last organization, similarly, there were four, which, you know, from top down all the way through the organization, that was authenticity, growth, performance, and collaboration. And these would be things that aren't just ideals, but that are actually part of your performance assessment. They're part of how your bonus gets defined. So I think that firstly says organizations are absolutely prioritizing it. And on the flip side, if you're, you're not doing it, you won't be effective in getting the outcomes that you, that you need. So you were sort of talking about the difference between a kind of top-down mentality of um, giving people jobs to do and telling them without any collaboration and that versus what you do, which is talking to everybody first before you start to set things up and also talking to them about how you use the data and analyse that for business performance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of ways you can do that in an organization. And I'll, I'll try and be specific there. So one, I've given this example that yeah, you might be setting the templates or setting the timetable together. But this other point you touched on is a really nice one of how do you continue to show people where does that information go? Why is that important? And so in, in my team, what we'll do is actually play it back to people. 
or I'll play it back to my leadership team of, okay, all of the regions, you've given this stuff. We've now taken that to the executive committee of the organization or to the board. Let me share with you what that looks like. And, and then also doing wider playback. So after we've had business reviews, getting my full team on the phone, giving them the option at least to be on the phone and, and playing back, hey, here's what got talked about. Here were the key messages out of the executive committee and being really explicit. That conversation was possible because of everything that you guys have been doing. And do you see yourself as uh, a leader in, in, in sort of setting up that collaborative culture? One of the things you can do to an organization or with an organization is say, let's spend some time and understand what each other's doing. And when you do that, it's a little bit vague for people and it's hard to create that sort of cross-team cross transparency. What we recently did with the team was say, get together and share three things. One, what's the piece of work you're most proud of that you do? What's the piece of work that causes you the most pain? And then have a conversation together about of all those things you've seen in sharing in a small group of four or five, what's the piece from all of those individuals that you think makes sense to replicate and extend across the team? And when you give a really clear mission like that, people know what to get after. They've got the boundaries to work in. But afterwards, what was really interesting for me is people came back and said, thanks, Adam, for making that happen. And sort of, wow, I had no idea they were doing that. And either, wow, I didn't know uh, sort of that our work was so similar or that it was so different. And, and, you know, I've absolutely got a role in making that conversation happen because otherwise conversations and, and the sharing that happens is typically, of course, far more practical and, and sort of task-oriented than that wider space you can create. Yeah, absolutely. And often is between uh, the employee and their line manager, their boss about, I've got a problem, how do we fix it? But this idea of going across different teams to find out if there's a solution elsewhere and bringing that back in is really great. And that definitely comes back to this point on, on data and how you get it. Uh, if you've got a layered organization and, and most of us are in that to some extent, right? You'll have people in a, in a local market and then in some type of regional or consolidation. If you're not creating that space, what you'll end up with is entirely layered deliverables and you'll end up with, with data that potentially doesn't line up. So, whatever your level is, then you're mapping what someone else is doing in an entirely different way. If you can create that conversation, you'll get that that flow through of the information working better in your organization. Right. So data, those numbers never tell the complete story in its entirety. There always needs to be a conversation. Absolutely. And in the finance context, I think that's becoming more true than, than ever. You've got more information available. Uh, you have better systems reporting it. And yet, you know, you don't see businesses having a huge uptake of going, let me use that self-service automation. They still want to have a conversation and understand what is this, what's going on. Uh, the framework I use for that is uh, something I, I learned quite a long while ago from a great leader who said, you know, you need to look at the what, which is your level one, the so what um, at, at the end of that, but in between the why. So what happened? Why did it happen? So what? And that's really difficult to get out of you know, numbers just on their own. Have you in your career found that there have been examples of, obviously, as you've, as you've already talked about, you know, collaborative practices which are positive, but also collaborative practices which maybe haven't worked? Yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can touch on both. I've talked a lot about my, my own experiences, but in observing others, I think there are a few particular things that work well. 
um, or let's say practical things that I've picked up from other people that I think are like that, that really works. The first, if you're moving, especially into senior leader roles where you're not interfacing with all of the team every day, really important is being someone who resets your intention and your why and explains that when you're messaging. The reason for that is that the bigger organization you're a part of or that, that you know, you're leading, the less face time you have with individuals. And so they're only going to hear the very small piece of, you know, the messaging you're giving. And if you're not regularly sort of recreating and sharing, why am I asking this? What's motivating me? Then the things you're asking for, the things you're saying can easily be taken out of context. So I've seen really good people just explaining, hey, this is why I'm interested in this. This is what gets me excited. Adding that sort of context of their personal motivation regularly sets a tone where then it's easier for them to work with people. And one other really simple thing that I've, I've liked seeing is from leaders who don't want to turn on work accidentally. It's really easy for someone to hear a senior leader say something and then, you know, you're talking about a report and they're like, oh, it could be good if we did this. And that turns on three months work in the organization and then someone comes up with a new report they've built. And so one really practical thing I've seen done and I've tried to work on myself is leaders being clear when they're brainstorming and when they're advocating. Basically, signposting what mode of communication am I in? And that's really useful way to not just turn on work in the organization, but be clear, hey, I'm, I'm here as well to have a conversation and think through stuff, or actually I'm asking for this, can we go and do it? Mm, really, really good examples there. On the, on the flip side about negative um, practices, for me, that comes down to authenticity. Uh, there are many people who've got a great story who can connect and make you feel important in the moment. And then go and break that by by destroying trust in some way, um, and that's probably you know a, a sort of a universal uh, challenge. I I think it doesn't matter on the level of the organisation. So people that will be friendly and 100%, yeah, let's do this. I'm on board. And then when it actually comes to the moment to do it, they're not actually committed or or they want to change tack and they're just. To be collaborative, they'd have avoided having the difficult conversation. Politically advantageous. It's politically advantageous in the moment, or it's just a cultural norm. They're just someone that likes getting on with people and and wants to <laughs> do that. But then when it really comes down to it, maybe they weren't they weren't ready. Uh, I think in high consensus cultures, and I, I think Australia is one of those, it's often let's go with the flow, let's be flexible. It is pretty difficult sometimes to do that, but you need to realize that trust can be broken. And then there's some simple things, right? Beyond that more granular, I, th I think looking at what's the time of day that I'm sending emails out? What's the time of day that I'm setting up meetings at? It's not hard just to save something as a draft and send it later, rather than sending an email to your team at, at 10 at night, if it's not actually critical and you're creating that always on mentality. And then of course, right, I mean, somehow, uh, Senior leaders sometimes feel like it's okay, I've got here, now I'm just going to act how I want. And also along the way there, there'll often be competition that comes up or let's say old wounds. And I've seen boardroom activities where there's two individuals and they just make it publicly visible. We're not going to be getting along. So as soon as one starts talking, the other one routinely pulls out their phone and just you know cuts off the room. You know, you have to set the tone for the organization. And, and I honestly believe that that means doing it, you know, behind closed doors as well as open and making it clear how we want the place, what kind of culture you want the place to run by. You touched on this notion of collaboration, but also 
you know, independent work, stuff that you do on your own. And But how do you sort of define the two or separate the two and make, there could be too much collaboration or, or not enough? Absolutely. And honestly, I find in my role uh, and the way I work, I have a tendency probably to over-collaborate. And so then carving out that, that independent time is important. And it's not just about having independent time, but I think it's also about your own credible delivery as a leader, right? You will easily be perceived as just doing lots of talking if that's all you do. That's one. But secondly, you need to create that space for yourself to actually be thinking, reflecting on how it's going and making change and improvement. In management roles, there's two levels to that. There's the individual piece of how much time am I spending collaborating and and what individual time do I have? But there is also thinking about and reflecting what tone am I setting in the organization? How much time does the team have for working individually and how much time are we asking people to be together? And it's easy to want to set up lots of engagements. Let's have an improvement opportunity. Let's have a town hall. Let's have a learning session. All fantastic things in isolation, but cumulatively might be too much for a team. Really simple solution to that takes a little bit of maintenance but is having essentially a, you know I can call it in the moment a collaboration calendar but being really transparent through each month where are the days where we've scheduled something that is asking the full team or a good part of the team to be involved and making sure that's phased out and we've got one of those in in my team and it really does just make it transparent how much are we doing? Is it the right level? Is there going to be a gap for a month where perhaps we should better connect with the organization? Just making it clear though, this is the right level. It's the not is a you know really good way to do that. That's a really interesting approach that you have there that you're being so transparent. You're everything that you, you're doing, you're telling me that you're letting the organization know why it's there, what it's for how often it's going to be there for, here's the time for collaboration and here's the time for independent work. It's a very clear schedule guideline of what's going on in the company. That's probably a result of, of working in FB&A to some extent in planning and appraisal. A lot of it is about making sure you've got the structure and the timetable in process and process in place for all the pieces to come together to get that data as an outcome. Uh, so it becomes a bit of a, a natural way of working, but something I absolutely believe in and, and clearly advocate for. There is uh, some some really nice material online uh, from GitLab, which is a fully online organization. They have only virtual working. And when you read about their material, and they've got a, a nice online course in uh, Coursera as well, what they advocate is, is really full transparency and writing everything down. Make it available to people, make it clear what's happening. And that's got the benefit of transparency, but also in terms of collaboration, it lets you work along global timelines a lot more easily without expecting everything to be synchronous, but rather you can have asynchronous communication and engagement by making things sort of available and visible in a written down way. There's a bit of investment in that, of course, in writing stuff down and thinking it through, um, but actually I'd argue that there's a, there's a benefit for you both the team, but also yourself then. On that note of remote work, I mean, obviously we've been in these COVID restrictions and in Europe, of course, to a much greater effect than than obviously we have been in Australia. You've been in COVID restrictions for 12 months um, at least over there. 
But you are talking a lot about remote work and you are working for a company and, of course, the company you worked for before, Shell, across countries. Are you used to remote work? Is it something that you've had to ramp up or is it something that's business as normal for you? It absolutely wasn't business as normal. (laughs) So it's been a big change, I think, for the organisation, certainly for me personally. What I mentioned before of working in a shared service location, a big part of the rationale behind those organizations is that rather than having many people dispersed, you can actually create centers of excellence, bring people into one location and and unlock connectivity and collaboration. That was a, a big part of creating the team that I'm now working with. And I wouldn't say it's been blown up, but it's obviously been made more difficult by, by the setup. So not only was it not the way of working that we had, but it wasn't the intent. Uh, to your point, it has been a year. Um, I think in that time, I've been into an office for a total of four or five days. Uh, and, and most often that's associated with you know an IT challenge where I need a new computer or something. So super limited. I went to Starbucks this week. I, I happened, to be, <laughs> happened to be out. And, you know, I'm there and I have the tall latte, please. And, and then I asked for this shot of, of syrup. And she's like, what flavor do you want? And I'm like, I don't remember. Yeah, I, <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, and I, I had to think about that and go through the menu. So, look, it's been a long time and definitely something to adapt to. That's interesting. You, I mean, you talk, it's a funny story about the coffee, but what you're really talking about there is your day-to-day activities being changed so much so that you forgot what it used to be like to work, to go to work, get a coffee on the way, turn up to the office, take the elevator up and so on and so on. How has that affected your team sort of more across the whole team and collaboratively when you're talking about Mondays are meeting days or, you know, the boss gets coffee on Tuesday mornings, those sorts of things? So it's a it's a big challenge. And for me, I'm someone that enjoys that and, and both the structure that you alluded to um, of structure of the day and structure of the organization, but also the way of collaborating and the experiences that you can create in an office are just fundamentally different. You try and flex to that and think about how do I make that effective? The challenge is what can I take from those past experiences, but what do I have to do new and differently to make it work in, in this environment? One of the the very small pieces I've started doing just to try and create a little bit of energy is if we're kicking off a wider team meeting is actually just streaming some music into the call at the beginning, which is a bit upbeat and creates this sort of sense of festivity, that buzz that you would get if you had typically, right, you put 50 people in a room and you have to struggle to get people's attention at the beginning. You never, no one has ever had that on a Zoom call or a team call, right? You've got 50 muted people waiting. So... (laughs) Um, trying to recreate that that buzz is important. Using virtual tools to do that, it's not the same, but you can actually create some level of engagement. One of the, I think, really cool things we've experimented with doing are thank you moments. And so using a tool like Mentimeter or um, AHA Slides, you get people just to say thanks to someone who's helped them in the last couple of months. And, and then they just start flipping up on screen. You can put a bit of music on and people are just like, you know, 
thanks, Daniel, for getting me that file, or thanks, Daniel, for helping me out when I was in a stretch. I feel better already. <laughs> yeah, see? And then they just start popping up on screen, and you've got some music going, and, and you actually can create some moments of, of positivity. That's so interesting that there is a lot that goes around trying to create that social cohesiveness that comes naturally, I guess, as you're alluding to, when you all come together. Yeah, you actually have to put effort in to make that happen. And to your point, that social cohesiveness, that that water cooler chat is dead. Uh, And this sort of um, spontaneous moments, the problem that I overheard and can get involved in, or, or, or the opportunity just to run into someone and that triggers, oh, I needed to talk to them. That's all gone and communications become far more deliberate. So it's about creating space for that kind of organic conversation to come up. One of the things that's failed, I think, in organizations, and and people will have different views on that, but are creating like a 30-minute slot, which is fundamentally not spontaneous for unstructured chat and calling it a a coffee connect or something with peers who maybe aren't the people who would talk to each other. I've joined those, we've tried using them, and and people, I think if you're on calls all day or, or many calls, then connecting for one that doesn't have a defined purpose really doesn't build a lot of energy in the organization. People are like, yeah, how about I just do my job over here? Uh, so you need then to to create deliberate moments as, as well, I think, for people. And do they help with taking poor collaboration from the team? And there may be people in the team that are poor collaborators, maybe even naturally so, and turning it into a high energy collaboration environment? So look, creating that high energy collaboration environment, it is about just trying different things, I think, and and then putting them in place, being willing to experiment and then being willing to turn them off if they're not being effective. And also about creating feedback loops from the organization to know how it's going. So a couple of things we're trying there are when we're doing these different types of engagements, polling people briefly, again, with a mentee or in our slides, getting them to just give us instant feedback. We've also set up a change agents network, but rather than calling them change agents network, the team latched onto the idea of being agents. And so they're actually called the double O's and in good James Bond fashion. And their job uh, as a a team is actually just to link up with people informally. And we give them missions because they're agents. So we'll give them particular things to find out about and then share back. So they become a bit of a channel provide an insight how are different things in the organization being perceived what do we need to do what are the gaps what are the questions people have that aren't coming up in bigger engagements so that then we can get after those that's the kind of thing in the office we haven't had to do but if you don't have that informal chat um, you you can't (laughs) easily gauge and and one other thing that's just come into my my mind um, of, of really trying to tackle that Although there are far more structured meetings in a virtual work environment than you might have in in the office, as a leader, you can and should probably create that informality. So from my perspective, that's about having half an hour a week where I just dedicate to calling people randomly, interrupting their day, or if you'd like to think of it, dropping by their desk, that chat you might have. Uh, which which makes people happy whenever it happens. Of course, you might disturb them and, and then you can call back um, or they won't answer. But creating some of that spontaneity is one of the ways you, you do build energy and connect as well. And I imagine you learn a lot too by talking to all the different team members, the, the little things that are bothering them that could perhaps actually be big things that you could change. 
Absolutely. That insight, right? This is this idea of, of go see, um, go to where the work gets done. Uh, that can't be done anymore, but you can have that conversation and hear from people and ask those questions explicitly. What's, what's going well? What's hurting? Uh, where can we better connect? How do we better link the dots here? That really is useful for people. And on this theme of data and collaboration, very commonly, that's about helping people unlock something or using your perspective to go, actually, you know, that problem you can solve, you can get that information over here. Or I know who can get that information for you. And, and that's somewhere where then you actually really help the individual and you know, build your own credibility and usefulness to the team as well. Mm, so collaboration is about joining the dots to help put a different data story together, perhaps. Absolutely. It's about joining the dots. One of the recent challenges that came up was looking at the impacts that the global container shortage is having, along with Brexit, on both slowing down and making the transfer of goods more expensive. And then, you know, the opportunities that come up there are, do we absorb those costs? What could be passed on to customers? What are they expecting? And someone in the organization was actually linking it together in finance, and they said, well, in that market, we know that our competitor has a factory here and a factory there, which are nearby and in market, and they won't be impacted by this. And that ability to understand that, to know what's our manufacturing outlay, what is our competitor's manufacturing outlay, and then link those up quickly helps you align on what are the, or converge on what are the potential ways forward. So if they're not impacted, they won't be passing on costs to customers. So therefore, we can't be doing that either. That, you know, is this great example of linking the dots, but also having that collaborative conversation with the right people who have the context. And none of that comes out of the data, which says our shipping got more expensive. Adam, you've told lots of wonderful stories today, and I, I can imagine our students madly jotting down all, all the little tips and tricks and examples you've given. But I wonder if there's something... Uh, we can leave with them today from our conversation, what sort of advice you might give to them if you could just give them one piece, um, especially around collaboration? That's obviously a, a big and difficult one to get into. But as we've had this conversation, the, the one big piece I think that I hope comes out is you have to invest in it and put structure around it. You can create informality. You can link people up and give them that space. But I think it only happens if as a leader, you really make sure you're investing in it. And, and they're those examples I gave, block time to make it happen. You know, put the tools in place, give people the boundary conditions that help them collaborate. That's all done by thinking through how we're going to do this and giving them the people, the structure and the tools to do it. It doesn't just always happen naturally and you've got a super important job to help people do that. And when you do, the outputs will get better. But as I mentioned before, people will actually come and thank you and go, hey, wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for making it happen. And, and true of culture too. I mean, we go for drinks for social lubrication. Coffee is the structure around those sorts of talks uh, that otherwise wouldn't happen. So it's something that we're used to, I guess, in that sense, but, but a very good tip. It's a really great point you make. And you've just reminded me that actually, in a way, I have had to, even before COVID, think about this and how do I create those moments in different ways? I previously worked in Brunei. Brunei is a country that has Islamic law in place. 
and and therefore alcohol is is not an option and you can't just take your team down the pub for drinks not only can you not but they they are often malay muslims and don't want to go down the pub for drinks and so creating those moments is something i've had to work on for a while and i think that really just makes the point that in different settings you will face those challenges covid and virtual work and as you said australia hasn't had that as severely as other areas but i think the the legacy of that will be global i think for australian employers to be competitive there will be a greater shift to virtual there as well we're all going to have to find new innovative ways and do that by experimenting with our teams of what works and indeed uh where we can get to the pub for a drink go for a coffee but if not make the time to to make cool experiences for our team that let them be engaged and and, and enjoy themselves but also drive better organizational outcomes make sure that the data comes and we've had a great virtual experience uh, discussing this today between Australia and Poland Adam Thorn thank you very much for coming on the show absolutely daniel pleasure to be here thank you information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site this has been a university of southern queensland podcast produced by the office for the advancement of learning and teaching